Good morning, everyone. Um, we have two Bible readings today. Um, the first one is from the book of Ephesians, chapter 5, verses 21 to 33. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the saviour. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church, without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body, just as Christ does the church. For we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. The second reading is from 2 Corinthians, chapter 7, verses 10 to 11. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret, but worldly sorrow brings death. See what this godly sorrow has produced in you, what earnestness, what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what alarm, what longing, what concern, what readiness to see justice done. At every point, you have proved yourselves to be innocent in this matter. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Sally. My name's Sam. I'm the pastor of our Uni Church congregation uh, and a member of this congregation as well. It's a joy to be opening God's word with you today as we uh, continue through this series uh, as as challenging as it is for us considering uh, these difficult topics. Over the last two weeks, John and then Ali have helped us understand more about the, the experience and the, the nature of uh, abuse, of, of violence in families, in churches, uh, in our society, in Australia generally. And what we're doing today is to try to recognise some of the, the myths or the misconceptions or the misunderstandings of Scripture that have enabled or perpetuated uh, abuse in our churches or in our Christian families. And it's, it's uncomfortable for us to do that, right? It's, it's like receiving difficult feedback on a project uh, or on an assessment. But like receiving difficult feedback, it's important for us to do this together so that we can grow, so that we can improve. We long at St. Jude's to be a church that understands and lives and teaches God's word rightly. When Christian people have chosen to 
abuse or when Christian churches have responded poorly to abuse, that's, that's never in God's will, as we'll see. We're going to acknowledge theological errors, misunderstandings around repentance and forgiveness, grace and reconciliation, around marriage and divorce and headship. And as we see a bit of what the Bible has to say, that the Bible, God's word, as the expression of of God's heart, we'll see in his word, in the gospel, a message of, of justice, of healing, of wholeness, of peace. We're going to cover a bit of ground as we try to engage a number of these myths and and misconceptions. First, we're going to consider three myths, um, particularly around uh, those who choose to abuse. Three myths around those who choose to abuse. And our first myth is this, that an abuser can get away with it. Abusers will not get away with it. If you are an abuser, you will not get away with it. Proverbs Proverbs 15, 3 says, The eyes of the Lord are everywhere, keeping watch on the wicked and the good. Jeremiah 17, 10, I, the Lord, search the heart and examine the mind to reward each person according to their conduct, according to what their deeds deserve. Hebrews 4, verse 13, Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Now, abusers will not get away with it. If if you're an abuser, you might manage to keep it secret in this life. Hopefully not, but you might. But one day you'll stand before the judgment throne of God and give an account for your life. The God who loved each person before the foundation of the earth, who loves his daughters and his sons made in his image, will demand an account of how you treated each person he entrusted to you. And there will be nowhere to hide. And God will punish your sin in one of two ways. Either Christ will place his body between you and the wrath of God, or he won't, and you will wear all of it. Someone will be punished for your abuse. Either you or Christ as your substitute. And that's, that's just the location, just the place of a second myth, that an abuser is beyond forgiveness. Abusers are not beyond forgiveness. God's word declares that you are not beyond forgiveness. This is so important. Ephesians 1 verse 7 In Christ we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace. Psalm 103, verse 12, as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Micah 7, 18 to 19, who is a God like you, 
who pardons sin and forgives the transgression of the remnant of his inheritance. You do not stay angry forever, but delight to show mercy. In Christ, and only in Christ, can those declarations be true for anyone, including abusers. God delights to show mercy. No matter what you have done, you're never beyond the reaches of God's grace. And this matters so much because it's probably not how you will feel treated. For, for men who choose to abuse and are exposed for their crime, the, the system of courts and child protection and psychologists will rightly prioritise the safety and the needs of those who've experienced abuse, and you may feel beyond forgiveness. But you're never beyond God's forgiveness in Christ. If you choose to abuse, God calls you to repent and find forgiveness in Jesus. Repenting from our sin, believing in Christ, that, that's the way that we receive the promises of the gospel. Jesus, at the start of his ministry, he went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. Repent. Repentance is not just saying sorry. Repentance is not just saying sorry. If you are abusing, it's not a biblical response to just say sorry. No matter how much you feel it or how much you, how effusively you express it. Repentance is more than just saying sorry. Let's have a look at how 2 Corinthians 7 explains repentance. So this was the second reading uh, that Sally read for us before. You can see it in your new sheet there. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow brings death. See what this godly sorrow has produced in you. What earnestness, what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what alarm, what longing, what concern, what readiness to see justice done. What do you notice about the two types of sorrow in this short passage here? Godly sorrow brings repentance. It leads to salvation and leaves no regret. Worldly sorrow brings death. If you, if you are sorry for abusing, for, for controlling, for intimidating, then please hear this call of God to godly sorrow and not worldly sorrow. What does godly sorrow produce? It produces earnestness, eagerness to clear yourself, indignation, alarm, longing, concern, readiness to see justice done. So does your sorry produce those things? Or does it just stop her from telling someone or leaving? 
Because that, that kind of sorry, that kind of worldly sorrow leads to deeper shame, to escalating abuse, to deeper regret, to deeper hatred, to helplessness for her and for you. Godly sorrow and repentance involves confession and not just to the one that you've abused, but to people who can help to bring justice and healing. Repentance involves change, doing what it takes to stop. This might mean needing to move out. This might mean your reputation being affected. This might mean changing access to your kids. Godly sorrow and repentance lead to readiness to see justice done. Most people who choose to abuse don't want to be abusers, don't want to be violent. And true repentance will mean getting help. Sin festers in darkness, it's exposed in the light. Bring it into the light. You won't be able to sort yourself out on your own, in secret, by your own willpower. You will need to take steps to get help. See, see a psych, Google the men's referral service and call them, talk to a minister, do something. True repentance. Truly repent and God will forgive you. But that doesn't mean she has to. More on that a little later on. Let's come to a third myth then, one which has sadly fostered and perpetuated abuse based on a misunderstanding of scripture. This third myth is that headship equals dominance. So this myth emerges from a few key passages of scripture and particularly the one printed in your new sheet there in Ephesians 5. The passage begins, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. So that line's kind of like the heading for a section of Ephesians to come in which Paul addresses wives and husbands, children and parents, slaves and masters. And Paul then gives instructions to wives and husbands. I'm just going to kind of summarize them with what uh, is said in verse 22 and 25. In 22, wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. And verse 25, husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Now, we, we could spend all day unpacking this passage developing a theology of, of marriage, but for the short time we have and for our purpose here today, I just want to highlight that there are a couple of different but acceptable ways that we might read and interpret this passage, and there's one unacceptable reading. So there are different ways that individuals, that couples, that churches might interpret this passage and others like it that God has created men and women in marriage to relate to one another in distinct ways, that husbands are called to headship, which is following the pattern of Christ, 
uniquely and distinctly, and that wives are called to respond to that um, by submitting. A second acceptable reading of this passage kind of locates these instructions in the cultural and legal reality of Roman society in which a strong power differential between genders was baked in, and so Paul's teaching them how to express Christian values and virtues within that structure. Those are two different but acceptable readings of this passage. Christians will differ over that, that's okay. But a third interpretation of this passage, which equates male headship with dominance, is absolutely unbiblical and completely unacceptable. The pattern laid out for husbands in this passage is Christ-like, self-giving love. To assert that headship means dominance, being at the top of a hierarchy of power, is the opposite of how Christ loved his church. If you've thought that headship means a husband's right to exercise power and control over his family and its, its finances or decision-making or mobility or friendships, then you've misunderstood this passage. The call to Christian, Christian husbands here, the call to Christian masculinity is a call to self-giving love, to deploying your entire life every resource and moment that God gives you in service of him and those that he's given you to serve and love. A man who is a safe and strong husband, a self-giving husband and father and colleague and son and friend is, is a unique and profound gift. A man who pours himself out for others is a man who reflects Jesus. We need our church, we need churches full of men like that. But there have sadly been times in churches where this myth that headship equals dominance has led to abuse and to harm. All churches, all Christian marriages should be places in which husbands lay down their lives for the sake of their wives, never exercise dominance over them. There's three, three myths kind of around those who choose to abuse, three myths that have led to harm. And God's word to those who choose to abuse is a call to repentance and to change. Let's, let's consider three myths then that those who experience abuse may hear or feel. Three myths around those who experience abuse. First, the myth that an abuser will get away with it. He will not get away with it. He might manage to keep it secret in this life, hopefully not. But one day, he'll stand before the judgment throne of God and give an account for his life. And the God who loved you and chose you before the creation of the world, who loves you as his daughter or his son made in his image, will demand an account of how he treated you. And there will be nowhere for him to hide. And God will punish his sin in one of two ways. Either in Christ as his substitute 
or in himself. Every act of abuse is subject to God's righteous judgment, either carried to the cross of Christ or punished in its perpetrator. Our God is the God of forgiveness and grace, and he's the God of holiness and justice and wrath against sin and evil. A second myth that has been communicated to so many who have experienced abuse is that divorce is not an option for Christians. Some Christians have taken verses like this one, Malachi 2.16, to to assert that divorce is not an option. The man who hates and divorces his wife, says the Lord, the God of Israel, does violence to the one he should protect, says the Lord Almighty. It grieves God's heart when the covenant relationship of marriage is broken. But by no means does that mean that there are no circumstances under which divorce is not permissible. There are circumstances under which divorce actually honours the parties of that broken marriage the best. In both the Old Testament and in the New Testament, provision is made for divorce when the covenant of marriage is broken. Even Jesus' own words in Matthew 19 permit divorce when the covenant of marriage is broken. God loves and treasures and values marriage and he loves and treasures and values people in marriage. And abuse is a profound violation of the marriage covenant. Not every marriage with abuse will end in divorce, but in some cases, divorce becomes the most God-honoring and image of God-honoring outcome. If you'd like to to delve further into the exploration in in scripture around legitimate divorce. Um, We've got a sermon on our website and in our Spotify from a few years back that Alex Unica preached about divorce and remarriage. You could listen to that if you want to think further. A third myth that those who experience abuse owe their abuser forgiveness. Too often, abusers in Christian marriage and churches have demanded forgiveness from those that they've abused. Beautiful biblical doctrines of forgiveness and grace and repentance and sanctification have been twisted into tools for harm instead of good. The truth is that if if you have been abused, forgiveness is your choice, not something that an abuser can demand from the one that they've abused. And forgiveness is not the same as allowing abuse to continue or excusing an abuser from the consequences of their choices and actions. If you have experienced abuse, forgiving the person who abused you may be a lifelong project. It's it's never quick or cheap. And you are not obliged to someone who has abused you to extend forgiveness to them, and certainly not on their terms. A final myth, then, around those who experience abuse. 
And I suspect that some who've experienced abuse have had this conscious thought. For others, it, it's a, a shadowy, unspoken feeling. The myth that God doesn't care. If you're experiencing abuse, then know today that God is for you. He is with you. His heart aches with compassion and love for you. In Genesis chapter 16, we meet Hagar. She's the slave girl of Abram and Sarai, who would later be renamed Abraham and Sarah. And Sarai is unable to conceive a child, so she instructs Abram to sleep with Hagar to bear a child. Hagar is, is sexually used and she becomes pregnant. Sarai's heart hardens with jealousy towards Hagar and she physically abuses her. Hagar flees into the desert where God himself meets her, comforts her, promises her a son and many descendants. And in verse 13, we read this. She gave this name to the Lord who spoke to her. You are the God who sees me. For she said, I have now seen the one who sees me. When she is unseen by people, a slave suffering abuse and rejection, she meets the Lord of the universe and he sees her. He truly sees her. He deeply sees her. El Roy, the one who sees me. He knows her pain, her feelings of powerlessness and frustration and longing. He sees her courage and her endurance when no one else has. He sees a future for her that no one else has yet seen. He is El Roy, the God who sees me. And he's the God who sees you. He chose you. He knit you together in your mother's womb. He numbers the hairs on your head and the days of your life. The moments of your deepest suffering and sorrow are not moments of his absence. They're moments of his, his deepest heartbroken compassion for you, of his deepest anger against sin, of his fierce resolve to bring ultimate justice and peace. If nobody else knows or nobody else believes what you're going through, know that God does. He is the God who sees you. Next week, in our final sermon, we will explore the kind of community that God calls us to be together. A community of, of flourishing, of safety, of peace and restoration and healing and hope. But for now, let me pray. Would you pray with me? God, you are the God who sees me. 
You are the God who sees each one of us. The God who knows us and loves us. And God, we pray for each one of us that we would see the one who sees me. For those of us, Lord, who've made the choice to abuse, empower us by your spirit to true repentance, to find forgiveness in Christ. For those of us who've experienced abuse, be our close comfort, our hope, our help. And we pray for all of us, Lord, as your people here at St. Jude's, that we would be a people of healing, of safety, of peace. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.